In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, Conversations about connecting and communicating. Now, if I asked you, I said, Alan, how do you think you looked when you stepped out of the classroom and all of a sudden saw your best friend under a single lamp in the middle of a, the room was painted bright red when you thought you were just going to be walking down the hallway? And you would say, well, I would assume that my eyebrows went up, my eyes grew wide, and my jaw dropped. This is a, a myth we've told ourselves. Emotion is only sporadically and inaccurately and irregularly expressed on the face in the way that we would expect from watching movies and television shows. That's Malcolm Gladwell with one of his trademark insights that are gleaned from often obscure social science research and that have enlivened his best-selling books like The Tipping Point, Outliers, Blink, and his latest, Talking to Strangers, Malcolm, this is great. I'm so glad to be talking to you today. Your books have stimulated me over the years, as they have uh, approximately 17 million other people. I don't know. (laughs) You've sold so many books. But one of the things that interests me is your first book, The Tipping Point, and your latest book, Talking to Strangers. They seem to me to fall under the same categories as this podcast, where we talk about Connection and communicating. Tell me about connectors. I mean, the the lady in Chicago and Paul Revere both fall into that category, and I love that. You know, it's funny. We're in the middle of an epidemic right now, and one of the things, one of the fascinating things we learn when we look at the epidemiology of an epidemic like COVID-19 is that transmission is asymmetric. So if there are 10 people who all have, who all are infected with coronavirus. One person probably infects, may infect 10 other people. Six may infect no one at all. And the balance might infect one other person. It's not the case that all of us do an equal amount of work in spreading an infectious agent. Then this is the case in every infectious epidemic you can find. It is never the case that transmission is something that is spread evenly over a given population. If we think of the spread of ideas as being analogous to the spread of viruses, then this must also be true. There must be a radical asymmetry in who spreads. So what makes a good spreader? Two things in particular. So not only, the obvious one is the degree of your, how sociable are you? How many people do you interact with in any given 
day or year or month. Um, and there are radical, you know, I, I used, this is way back in the day. This is before computers when I was writing that book, not before computers, before the digital age was has kicked in. But when people still had Rolodexes and I would, I would just compare the size of people's address books or Rolodexes. And they're not, you know, there are people there who had Rolodexes that were 5X or 10X larger than mine. That person could spread an idea way more effectively than I could. Or I had people count how many phone calls they would make in a given day. My best friend who lives down the hill from me, he makes three phone calls a day, right? He doesn't, he cannot spread an idea. Whereas you and I both know people who make 50 phone calls a day. And right? it, it occurs, something else occurs to me as you say this. It's probably not that somebody with 5,000 contacts compared to your 1,000, that they're contacting all 5,000 and you're not. It's probably that they have a greater chance of contacting somebody slightly outside their normal circle. Exactly. That's the second crucial thing is how many worlds you belong to. So if you have 5,000 names in your on your phone in your address book, but every one of those 5,000 names is another actor, that's gonna limit your ability to spread something. But if I look on your in your 5,000 names and I discover that I can divide them into 10 different worlds, the world of actors, the world of scientists, the world of you know real estate agents, the world of journalists, the worlds of, I don't know, I mean, I'm just making it up, then that makes you incredibly powerful. So it's not just number, it's variety. So I, I understand how that was true with the lady in Chicago mm-hmm. who had a couple of thousand people that she was connected to with a great variety. Mm-hmm. How did variety matter to Paul Revere, or did it? Well, just in the sense that Paul Revere was, by virtue of the positions he had held and the informal role he played in the community, he was just connected to a cross-section of the community. He was just the guy everybody knew. So when he rides out, that night to warn people about the that the British were coming, he he wasn't just talking to his peers or people in the same age group or profession as him. He had a profession which exposed him to a cross section of society. And the guy, the other guy who rode out that night to tell everybody the British were coming, apparently wasn't as successful as Paul Revere. Yeah, William Dawes did the, made the same journey, and he just didn't have those. No one. No one listened to William Dawes and gathered to meet the British at wherever it was, Lexington, because he was like, oh, who is this guy? I don't know. Why? <laughs> if some random, some random dude shows up at your door at two o'clock in the morning and says, the British are coming, or in this case, the Canadians are coming. Like, you're not running out with a musket into Central Park. And no, but if your best, if someone you've trusted and known for 30 years does that, then you would, you would take it seriously. So have you looked into it and, and, and have you found things sufficiently interesting to be able to advise somebody who knows a lot about climate change, for instance, who would like to see a true picture of climate change spread throughout the culture? Mm-hmm. What, what kind of connectors should that person be looking for? Yeah. Well, that's a, I mean, a fascinating question because that the climate change issue has become so freighted with um, irrelevant ideological or, or um, distracting ideological baggage 
I guess I would look for someone who was, uh, who by virtue of their position um, would be perceived by others as being a relatively objective and trustworthy source. You know, I remember, um, I don't know if I put it in the tipping point or not. I had a fascinating conversation once with a woman who was trying to encourage, she had noticed in her hometown, this is well back in the 90s, that African-American women uh, were getting mammograms at a rate that was well below what they should be. And as a result, breast cancer rates were higher than they should be. And so she asked herself the question, how can I reach African-American women in an effective way? And she realized, oh, I should use um, uh, hairstylists. Oh, I remember this. Remember this? Yeah. Because you're sitting in a chair for a long time, you're going on a regular basis, and your hairstylist has no ax to grind on this particular matter. So this woman sat around to gather up hairstylists and educate them about mammograms and encourage them to talk to their clients about it. And, you know, they're not making any money off it, right? They're not, they don't have a, they don't have a side interest in mammography clinics. They're someone you have been going to presumably for, in many cases, for years and entrusting with, I'm sorry, for all of us, our hair is like a big deal. The person we entrust (laughs) our hair to, we don't, we don't give up our hair to just anybody, right? Well, you have I, a relationship. I, I know that's true because my wife cuts my hair. So <laughs> yes, that's right. So that's one hundred percent true. <laughs> you, uh, you, um, and you, you haven't had the same degree of urgency in this era in the last few years as you had earlier in your life. No, I, just, no, uh, I, the less urgency because I have less hair. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, that's, what, that's what I was going to say. Um, but, um, uh, but that was an interesting. So the question would be, I suppose, when it comes to climate change. Is there a version of that person, the hairdresser, who would have legitimacy and objectivity and authenticity in a community of people who might not? And, you know, I'll throw out an idea, a random idea, that I've often thought that preachers, ministers, um, would be a really excellent community because there is something, you know, the Bible talks a lot about the importance of stewardship. Mm. It is a biblical notion that we are uh, asked by God to take care of his creation. So, you know, it is not a far stretch to think that people in the religious community would be an idea, would be open to educating themselves and to spreading information um, about climate change, right? It's squarely in their agenda. And also, the, the people who listen to them might listen to them more than they would listen to someone on CNN. Right. Because, again, they don't have any ideological acts to grind. They're acting out of their religious commitment to be good stewards of God's creation. So, I mean, I've often thought there's a missed opportunity there. And they're also speaking, you know, in many parts of America, the audience that is attending church and listening to preachers are people who are maybe resistant to climate change arguments. So you're reaching the people you want to reach. Let me ask you about the other half of what we talk about a lot, connection and communication. Mm -hmm. And I think you deal directly with that. At least that's my impression in the latest book, Mm -hmm. Talking to Strangers. The difficulty of being clear and understanding what the other person is saying by the the same token. We, We often talk different languages. And by the way, it's not only when talking to strangers, it's two people who have been married for a long time can still speak in ways that the other doesn't understand really well. Yeah. What's going on there? 
Well, I think what's going on is that we overweight the value of the conclusions we draw from things like body language, facial expressions, displays of emotion. And we forget just how much variety there is in the expression of those things. So the way I signal, my favorite example of this was from a um, uh, study I quoted in the book. It's a study done by a group of German psychologists where- I, I love this. I love this. You love, this, I love, so good. this is great. Go, go, go ahead. So we, we bring people into a room. We have them do a task. In this case, reading a passage of Kafka and you know, answering questions about it. And when they're led into the room, they come down a long hallway and then they do it in a standard classroom. What you don't realize is the hallway is a, has been constructed with you know, movable walls. And while I'm doing the Kafka task, they reconfigure the room. So in fact, uh, it's your, you, when you step out of the, of, the, of the classroom, there's a giant room which is dark except for a single light hanging down from the center. And below the light is your best friend. So what they've done is they've engineered the single most surprising situation for an individual. I walked down a long hallway, did a boring task, got up and left to leave. And all of a sudden, whammo, I see this big room with my best friend under a single light in the middle. And the question is, so you're surprised, right? The question is, how do you surprise uh, register on your face? Now, if I asked you, I said, Alan, how do you think you looked when you stepped out of the classroom and all of a sudden saw your best friend under a single lamp in the middle of a, the room was painted bright red when you thought you were just going to be walking down a hallway. And you would say, well, I would assume that my eyebrows went up, my eyes grew wide, and my jaw dropped, right? Well, they actually would, everyone who stepped out of the room, they would videotape them to see whether this is true. When we're surprised, do, do our jaws drop, eyes go wide, and eyebrows go up? And the answer is, only in the tiniest fraction of cases. In most cases, when people are utterly shocked, nothing happens on their face at all, right? We don't register in our face. This is a, a myth we've told ourselves. Emotion is only sporadically and inaccurately and irregularly expressed on the face in the way that we would expect from watching movies and television shows. There is some basis of, in the idea that in the presence of something pleasurable or funny, we smile and our eyes crinkle. That happens a lot. But the problem is that it doesn't happen all the time. And the minority of people who don't register pleasure in that way are confusing to us. Mm -hmm. um, or a better example would be, that's very relevant in the world we live in, is remorse. So I got obsessed with remorse. There's a huge literature on remorse. So all of us would say that we're more inclined to be lenient with someone who breaks the rules if at the moment that we're considering punishment, they are remorseful. Uh. So what does remorseful mean? Well, we know what the words are, I'm sorry, but we want more than just, I'm sorry. We want them to look remorseful, right? Right, right. And so what does looking remorseful feel like? Well, <laughs> right. It turns out there is no such thing as a remorseful look. We have all these ideas which are made up out of whole cloth. You know, we're not dogs. Dogs know how to look remorseful, but usually they're just playing us. You know, they lower their nose. <laughs> yes, right. They they cast their eyes downward. They they just make their tails go back and forth like a just just like a little bit. You know, they're they have a whole thing. But human beings don't have tails. We can't lower our noses in the, quite the same way. So in some cultures, it's considered to be shameful 
for a man to show remorse, man in particular, to show remorse in that way. That you watch, in fact, in some cultures, require, think that remorse requires a kind of stoicism. Mm. Um, in other cultures, you know, I could go on. There's a million different cultural variations when it comes to remorse. And then there's a million different individual variations when it comes to remorse. Some people might feel a deep shame. Some people might feel um, uh, guilt. Guilt and shame are different emotions. Mm. So some people might blush. Some people might feel anger at themselves, mm. right? Deep-seated anger that they could have done something that's... I mean, I could go on and on and on. There's all these variations that we're not properly accounting for them if we have in our heads a fixed notion of what... So if I'm in a jury and I'm trying to evaluate a prisoner on the dock, um, I need to keep that in mind. I don't know what remorse means in that case. And when the prisoner says, I am so sorry, and they say it in a way we don't like... We need to ask ourselves, now, wait a minute, are we using an objective standard here? Um, or are we just imposing our own idiosyncratic and biased notion of what remorse, remorse should be on the situation? And there, in the case of a jury deciding whether or not he's remorseful, although perhaps the judge is the one to decide in terms of sentencing, but a wide range of judges will have a wide range of opinions about what constitutes remorse. Oh, of course. And when you look at, there's a huge literature that demonstrates how, um, you know, this same offense can lead to dramatically different sentences from different judges. Yeah. And that's part of what we're talking about. Different judges have different ways of, in, of interpreting things like remorse. Was something like this going on between the cop and the woman who was stopped in the story you begin the book with? Oh, yeah. Sandra Bland, the case of Sandra Bland, which is the hallmark case of talking to strangers. Absolutely. So here is a woman who was pulled over for no good reason, on the most trivial of pretexts. And his... What was the... What, it was an interesting thing. She pulled out... Was it a university she was pulling yeah, out of? Yeah, she's coming out of a university in, in Texas, outside of Houston, in a small town. And the cop sees that she's got out-of-state plates, and she's a young black woman starts to trail her, and then as does as police officers are trained to do, he, he pulls up behind her, and she moves over to let him pass and doesn't use her turning signal. So now he says, oh, aha, I had my pretext. And he stops her and says, ma'am, you didn't use the turning signal when you moved aside when I came up behind her. Now, that's nonsense, right? And so she is, she's had a, not the first time she's been stopped on a flimsy pretext by police officers, She's had a traumatic personal life over the previous year. So she is distressed. The officer reads her distress as some mixture of dangerousness and malice. Mm. And so the, the officer thinks, she's up to no good. She's going to pull a gun on me. She's a criminal. She's now, smuggling now we, drugs. We, we know what he was thinking because he reported that in, a, in testimony. Is that right? I mean, you're, yeah, not, you're, not, a, you're not just reading his mind. No, he, this is what he says afterwards. And I think there's something to that. The way he responds to her is so bizarre otherwise. He starts to almost immediately treat her as if she's some kind of criminal, as opposed to a woman coming from a job interview at a university. So he clearly massively misreads the situation. He's treating her as, as if she's a threat to society within 30 seconds of stopping her. And I... 
it, it is fundamentally a case of him rushing to judgment on the basis of a very faulty reading of her emotional displays. And that case is a lesson to all of us about how dangerous it is to rush to those kinds of conclusions about people based on such a noisy and inaccurate source of information. And it had a very bad ending. The, the, he, she was arrested and was put in jail for three days. And she ends up taking her own life, yeah. Yeah. Malcolm Gladwell and I will explore the implications of this case for the contentious topic of police reform when we come back from our break. I want to thank all of you who have signed up to support Clear and Vivid on Patreon. It really helps us to bring you conversations with some of the most interesting people out there. Along with our sponsors, you make Clear and Vivid possible. If you haven't become a patron yet, here's how it works. If you visit patreon.com slash clearandvivid, you can subscribe for as little as $2 a month to get advanced news about coming shows and get listed on a virtual wall of generous benefactors, and there's even a modest bit of swag. If you go for a higher level of support, there's a lot of fun stuff coming your way. Videos and audio clips of moments with our guests that were fascinating but didn't make it into the show. Bonus episodes of behind-the-scenes chat as my producer Graham Chet and I put the shows together. Plus, for our top subscribers, a monthly video conference with me. That's been a wonderful experience. I love meeting the thoughtful, engaged people who listen to our podcast. And I'll even record a personalized voicemail message for your mobile phone. If you'd like to know more, just go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. And remember, you don't have to become a patron to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen for free. But you can get an awful lot of fun extras if you do become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work with the Aldous Center for Communicating Science. So join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's patreon.com slash clearandvivid. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. 
No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Malcolm Gladwell. We were talking about his book, Talking to Strangers, and the tragic case of a policeman misreading the intentions of an innocent woman. I can see why you made that the centerpiece of the book, because it's such an unfortunate and extreme example. And as we see almost weekly, if not more so, the same kind of instinctive, almost instinctive, or at least automatic response to somebody who's actually displaying courtesy and and the policeman is not taking it that way. Yeah, yeah. Is it something that can be improved by communication training or is it something that that goes even deeper than that? What, what, what are your thoughts about how to make it better? Well, you know, one of the good ideas that's come out of the recent debate about policing in this country is this idea of relieving the police of some of their social responsibilities and handing them over to people who are trained um, in that respect. So the police should not be dealing with mental illness. They're not, and they're the first to tell you that, right? They don't, they're not, they're not trained, equipped. That's a whole complex area. You need someone who has a whole background in that specific area and has an ability to interpret and de-escalate and do all the things that are necessary in that situation. So, Part of it, I think, is understanding the degree of expertise that's required to deal with um, these kinds of deeply difficult and ambiguous, emotionally ambiguous situations. Uh, you know, psychologists, trained psychologists should be the ones who answer those kinds of calls. And it's this is my big argument throughout this whole debate we've had about police conduct in this country, is we've been very quick, and I think appropriately, to point fingers at faulty policing. Not so quick to point fingers as ourselves. I, Malcolm Gladwell, have sat back over the last 10 years while we have systematically divested um, and underfunded social support mechanisms in um, urban areas in America. When was the last time I sat up and told my, my political leadership that I would happily pay extra taxes to beef up our mental health or our homeless outreach services or any of those things? I haven't done it. So what grounds do I have to stand up and get really upset at the cops now? Because they were the ones, because I didn't, I didn't stand up and argue for that over the last 10 years, the police were made the default social service agency of choice for dealing with socially problematic situations, right? They didn't ask for that. We, we did it by our own neglect and disinterest, uh, uninterest rather. Uh, so I think we should all, we all bear responsibility for what's happened here. Not having enough psychological help to communities is not so, it doesn't fit on the evening news. Yeah. So it's kind of understandable that it goes under the radar. To the extent that you can tie the two together as you're doing now, it seems to me to be a very useful thing. Yeah. Do you see that happening? Are, are communities recognizing the need for that? I mean, as someone has pointed out, there are 18,000 police departments in the United States, each of which has a different culture, a different set of different training, different regulation, different everything. So 
uh, I am absolutely sure that some of those 18,000 are taking, have taken and are taking steps to address this. Um, I am not at all convinced that a, a good majority of them are. I think we have a long way to go. But, um, you know, we are, we're in a certain sense at the mercy of our highly decentralized way of policing in this country, right? I mean, 18,000 police departments, there's a lot of the police departments. That's, that's 18,000 conversations you've got to have about how to reform. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it's, it would be a lot easier if, this is not Ontario, where I grew up, where you have the, you know, you've got like, I don't know what the number is, but it's some tiny, tiny fraction of 18,000. Um, and where you have a much stronger provincial government that that sets standards and things like that. So, but I am, you know, for the first time, I will say I was, I'm more optimistic now than I was after Michael Brown in Ferguson and after going back another 10 years after I was, remember the Amadou Diallo case? Yeah. When a young black man is shot 41 times by police officers as he reaches for his wallet to show them his ID, that didn't go anywhere. And shot within a couple of seconds. Yeah. Yeah, that's, a, I mean, that's, I wrote about that case in my book, Blink. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm more optimistic than I was. I am, but we we have a long way to go. What about in terms of communication, where we're a culture now that doesn't argue with one another the way we used to? We settle for mm-hmm. hating one another. Mm-hmm. And if it comes out of the mouth of the hated one, it ipso facto has no value. Yeah. On both sides, by the way. Yeah. Uh, to a great extent, anyway. Uh, what hope do you have, what hope do you sense that we may be able to get back to arguing again? Mm-hmm. There I'm hopeful. I'm actually, I think what's going on right now is that the, the, the public debate has been hijacked by a, very visible and very vocal and very small minority of people. In my experience, and you would have the same experience, um, you know, some in the pre-COVID days, some large portion of my time was spent going out and talking to people in a variety of different contexts, leaving New York City and going, you know, to meetings, conventions, festivals, whatever, you name it, right? I spent a lot of my time on the road. And I was always those kinds of encounters always left me tremendously optimistic with the, the every, the, I don't want to use the word average because I don't mean that in the sense of their average. I mean, the, the typical American is perfectly willing and capable of having a rational discussion about things. They're not on, you talk to a, if you're sitting on a plane next to a 48 year old, you know, uh, salesperson who lives in a suburb of Atlanta, who's got three kids and goes to church on Sunday and volunteers at his kids' little league. And there's a lot of people like that in America. That person is not hostile to debate or to, that person is not hopelessly, you know, they're, you talk to them, they're like, you can convince them of stuff. Their mind is open. They don't have a lot of time. They're busy trying to make a living. They have kids, they have, you know, so they have a limited kind of bandwidth for this kind of stuff. But I have never felt that that kind of person was, and I think that person is overwhelmingly the majority of Americans. They don't have, they're not caught up in all this crazy um, partisanship. It is, but there's a community in visible places on Fox News, on CNBC, 
on Twitter, on who are just engaging in a, this crazy conversation, which makes no sense to me. And I think what's incumbent on us is uh, to find the places where the real conversation is taking place and just spend our time there. Well, you and I had a conversation on your, I guess it was for your podcast about Korea. You were very interested in digging deeper into the history of the Korean War. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, I had nothing to offer. Everything I know about Korea is in the series MASH. <laughs> not, not true. Not true. We had a, I thought I was very. I thought our conversation was fantastic. Oh, well, where have you? Where, what, where have you gotten with that? What are your thoughts? I did a four-part series in this episode, in this season of Revisionist History, that's about the bombing of Japan and the uh, invention of napalm, and so I'm I'm tracing the ideas that led to the firebombing of Japan in the summer of 1945. And then in the last episode, I talk about Korea, Vietnam, and how our ideas about bombing both evolved and didn't evolve. And I'm very, the thing that's weird about Korea, of course, is that in American life, there was really only one institution that ever discussed that war in any detail whatsoever, and that was MASH. Huh. No, nobody, show I, me I'm, I'm not aware of that. Tell me more. I mean, it's fascinating. World War II, I can find thousands of cultural representations of that war, right? Oh, I see. Biographies, television shows, books, movies, documentaries, statues, museums. I go on and on and on and on. You can't, cannot escape. So there's a hundred different ways to consider World War II. Vietnam, I can find it in popular music. I can find it in Apocalypse Now. I can find it in books. I can find it in people who are still alive today who will talk about it. I mean, on and on and on and on. We had, that war left a powerful imprint on our national psyche, on our, on literature, on art, on everything. The Vietnam Memorial is this iconic memorial in, I don't even know where the Korean Memorial is. I certainly haven't visited it. I visited the Vietnam Memorial. I haven't, I don't, name me a, uh, a best-selling movie, not best, a best-selling book that was about uh, the Korean War. Name me anything other than MASH that dealt with the Korean War in American. Uh, if I walked up to the average American and I said, tell me what the Vietnam War was about, they would tell me, and they would be pretty accurate. What was the World War II about? They could tell me. What was the Korean War about? God only knows, unless they watch MASH. It's MASH. <laughs> the, uh, well, obviously, the war was about hot lips. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm, not sure, I'm not sure we delivered history, but we delivered good stories. You did, though, in this really, I mean, I talk about it, this is in the show, in both good and bad ways. I mean, not bad is the wrong word, but in mixed ways, because it's hard to, it's television, it's a sitcom. I mean, it's, there are limitations. Um, but I think it is of enduring fascination to me that, um, that's all we have. Ne rarely has a war um, I, left such a kind of shallow imprint on a country. I think there were a couple of movies. I, 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 I don't remember them very well. But there but, was no but, Deer Hunter or no Apocalypse it, it, Now. Right, right. You're yeah. right. Yeah, that is strange. And you remind me of, I, we probably talked about this in our conversation when I was trying to do some research on the Korean War. I came across a book called In Every War But One. And the thesis of the book was in other wars, when soldiers were in foxholes, they'd shoot their rifles 
toward the enemy. And in this war, they hunkered down in the foxholes and shot up in the air Mm -hmm. because they didn't want to expose themselves because they didn't know why they were there in the first place. That was the idea behind the book. I don't know how well researched that idea was. But it, it kind of hints at a special flavor to that war. That may be why why yeah. you'd, you'd, you see a paucity of reflection on it. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe that continued in the culture. What? Well, I'm glad that's over with. Don't know what that was all about. Yeah, it's a strange. And when we deal with North Korea today, we don't deal with it in the context of the North uh, the Korean War. During the Korean War, we reduced North Korea to rubble. We we were at the point where the Air Force ran out of targets. We so completely obliterated that entire country. That war, in their minds, is it happened yesterday. It's as fresh as, that's what they're, why do you think they're so desperate to arm themselves with nuclear weapons, to make sure that doesn't happen again? Mm. We don't understand their behavior because we've forgotten why they would feel so paranoid and, and threatened, right? So like there are consequences I think it's really useful for us to say, it doesn't excuse their behavior by any means, but it explains it. It's like they're dealing with a context that we have, we have brushed aside. Well, somehow we've wound up with a series of James Bond villains running North Korea. So that, what you're saying probably gives us a little motivation for the character, but they're still weirdly like James Bond yeah, villains. They are. It is, very, it is very James Bondian. Yes, that's absolutely right. Unfortunately, we're running out of time now, and I'm I'm loving talking with you. We end the shows uh, most of the time with seven quick questions that have something vaguely to do with communication. Are you game? I'm game. Okay. First question. What do you wish you really understood? Statistics. Oh. I should have taken statistics in college. How do you tell someone they may have their facts wrong? It's funny. Last night I was at dinner with a guy who said, very intelligent guy, and we we're talking about police shootings, and he said, well, you know, the weird thing is, of course, is that only 54 people in America are killed every year by police. The real number is 1,000. And I had this exact, this was the exact question. I didn't want to, I wanted to correct him as gently as possible because I thought he was actually the kind of person who, if you did it right, would not just change his mind, but actively explore why he had, how to correct him. So uh, I said, you know, actually it's complicated because there's all kinds of definitional issues about what a police killing is. But the best treatment is this, I named a book. I gave him the name of the book and the guy who wrote the book, Frank, Frank Zimring's When Police Kill, and written three years ago, it's pretty definitive. And Frank Zimring thinks it's closer to a thousand. So did he slam down his napkin and walk away? <laughs> no. <laughs> what happened? He took out his phone and went on his Amazon app and ordered the book. Oh, great! Well, you so, thank you had thankfully the the source of your information handy. I think, but that's the thing to to answer the question. Do it. You can't. The person you don't want to embarrass the person or make them lose face. Yeah. And you want to give them. I think it's always easier if you can triangulate. So I'm not saying that they're wrong. I'm saying, actually, there is a guy who's an expert on this, and you should take a look at that because it, it might, you know, help you improve your, uh, uh, your perception. 
Okay, next question. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Oh, my. Uh, in order to come up with the conclusion that that's a strange question, I have to have a kind of prejudicial, overly judgmental view of the person asking the question. I consider all questions fair game. So I don't, you could ask me, I don't have to answer it, but I think any question that occurs to an honest, a well-meaning interviewer is a legit question and can't, should not be dis- described as strange. Uh, well, the stra- one of the strangest questions I've heard from one of our guests was, have you explored your elfin genealogy? <laughs> no one's ever asked me that. <laughs> that might count as a strange question. Okay, yes. <laughs> I've never gotten that. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Well, who says I want to? Oh. What if they're interesting? Uh, the, are you the, saying the, an the uninteresting fact, compulsive talker? Um, there's something about the word compulsive that makes them uninteresting to me. I don't think so. I like, I happen to be quite drawn sometimes to compulsive people. Um, I would, re- can I rephrase the question? How do I stop an uninteresting talker? <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> um, and I, well, try to be as gracious as possible. Um, try, try, you know, try to gently interject and steer the conversation into some um, self-limiting territory. Uh, get another say that my drink is full and need to, or say that I have to go to the bathroom. That's probably the best. Two most common responses. It's so interesting. Next time somebody says their drink is full, I'm going to think about what I might be saying that's obnoxious. Let's say you're at a dinner party sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you strike up a real conversation? How do you get a real conversation going? I, as a rule, tend to be tremendously interested in people's parents. Hmm. Um, and I also find, secondly, that when people, when you get people on the subject of their parents, you throw them out of their normal kind of conversational grooves. And also it's a non-ideological question. So it's a very safe and fruitful conversational pathway. So all of a sudden, and I'm not, you know, and it's a weird thing. No one ever judges someone else's parents. So it's just a really wonderful place to begin with someone. Um, and that's tend to be where I begin. What gives you confidence? Confidence? Yeah. If I'm enjoying myself, hmm. then I feel like that's the... I get worried and anxious when I'm doing something that appears to have no meaning or bring me no joy or um, seems like it's a dead end. But if I'm doing something that I look forward to, then I have every confidence in the world. It's just because I'm, you know, I'm doing what I'm, what I feel like I'm supposed to be doing. Okay. Last question. What book changed your life? So many books have changed my life, but I, the, probably there's a book written by uh, Richard Nisbet and Lee Ross in the seventies called The Person and the Situation. And it's a classic in psychology and it's the argument for, uh, taking people's environment and context more seriously in explaining their behavior and shying away from making explanations of human motivation and behavior based on internal characteristics like character or personality. Um, That has shaped almost everything I do is a argument along the lines of stop drawing conclusions about, stop saying that person has the following character flaw or trait and start looking at the world around them to try and explain their behavior. 
words to live by. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been really fun talking. Really I, fun. I enjoyed it so much. Yes, Alan, so it's a pleasure once again to see you. Me too, Malcolm. Yeah. Thank you. Be well. Bye-bye. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Malcolm Gladwell has written six best-selling books, including the two we talked about in our conversation, The Tipping Point, and his latest, Talking to Strangers. He's also the co-founder of the podcast company Pushkin Industries and the host of the podcast Revisionist History. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Rebecca Rag Stiles. She's written a wonderful and eye-opening book about the Neanderthals. As a proud descendant of Neanderthals, I was happy to learn that they were probably a lot more creative than we've given them credit for. There used to be sort of a, a bit of a cliche that Neanderthals kind of evolved and then just did the same old stuff for 300,000 years. Um, and that's that's not fair to them. They did have their own culture history they innovated different technologies and we can see quite specific little regional flowerings of ways of doing things. Rebecca Rag Styles and our Neanderthal cousins next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.